Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from our slightly different perspective. You know, when it comes to keeping and maintaining our botanical-style aquariums over the long term, there are a fair number of questions I receive regularly, so it kind of makes sense for me to tackle this topic once again. Now, of course, I'm not going to tackle it with the, the typical nuts and bolts kind of stuff you might expect. Um, you know, one thing that we have to contemplate before we delve too deep into the to this sort of practicality aspect of it is the, the whole concept of the botanical style aquarium. I mean, like we keep an aquarium stock with leaves, seed pods and other stuff in order to do to do what? Well, for most of us, it's stocked with the stuff in order to replicate on some level the environmental, chemical and physical environments from which our fishes come from in the wild. And since the wild is not the sterilized, sparkling clear, you know, place of the nature aquarium fantasy that we've come to uh, know and love, we have to think about things a little differently. The whole idea of this, you know, of this kind of system operates on a sort of contrarian mindset, which is very different from what we've been conditioned to accept in the aquarium hobby. Again, just sort of wrap your head around this for a minute. You're not talking about siphoning out every speck of detritus or worrying about every strand of algae, biofilm, or decomposing leaf, right? That's crazy. Yet, in an aquarium filled with this stuff, your first thought, and rightfully so, I suppose, is, shit, this could go south real fast if I let it. (laughs) Yet, I have a slightly differing theory on that. I think that the presence of these materials, particularly leaf litter, serves as a catalyst or a fuel for biological processes, such as denitrification. At least one field study of natural systems and the impact of leaf litter concluded the same. Uh, a nice quote from uh, O'Brien et al. from 2017 uh, is right here. The benefits of leaf litter addition shown in our study, including enhanced microbial activity and denitrification processes. So this was a, an effort to understand riparian wetland um, uh, regeneration and so forth. And so they, they incorporated leaf litter into these aquatic systems and facilitated denitrification. Very interesting stuff. And it makes... A certain degree of sense, really. I can't help but think of the biological processing capability of leaf litter botanical beds as a sort of a freshwater analog to the deep sand bed or refugian concept of the reef aquarium world. And sure, although we're talking about closed aquatic systems, nature still controls things. And everything we do, fish, food inputs, maintenance, and nutrient export functions to create some sort of, you know, functions to create some sort of balance You know, not bringing in too much nutrient without a correspondingly sufficient export process. So, yeah, creating an aquarium utilizing botanicals is about creating a balance. And the maintenance practices we incorporate into our aquarium practices are all about maintaining that balance. And it starts with the most time-honored, basic, and easy-to-execute, yet oddly loathed by many, maintenance practices. Water exchanges. First off, a lot of people ask me about doing water exchanges, specifically how much, how often, and how. Okay, first off, let's just be clear about one thing. There's no real magic technique to maintaining a blackwater or other botanical-influenced aquarium other than the usual stuff with a few variations. So if I had one key concept that is most important to get across other than understanding that our aquariums require balance, it's about promoting stability. Stability? Not really novel, I know, but think in terms of stability and pretty much everything else is easy, right? I personally think that environmental stability is one of the most important, if not the most important things we can provide to our fishes. To me, it's more about doing something consistently than about some specific practice. But you asked, 
and I favor a 20% weekly water exchange in my systems. That may seem like a lot to some, but it's the regimen I've stuck with for decades and it's never done me wrong. In a botanical-influenced aquarium, as we all know, you've got a lot of biological material in there in addition to the fishes. You know, like decomposing leaves and softening seed pods, stuff like that. And even in a well-managed, biologically balanced aquarium, you still want to minimize the, you know, the effects of any excess organics accumulating within the system in a detrimental manner. So without going on and on, I will simply encourage you to embrace a weekly water exchange. How to do a water exchange, how we do it, is, is nothing novel or, or exciting. If you want to ask me how I do it exactly, maybe one day I'll, I'll live stream my, a water change if you're really that interested. But I don't think you would be. And of course, in the context of water exchanges, I'm asked if we should remove broken down bits of botanicals, leaves, and detritus during the process. I think we certainly can remove the stuff if we want. <laughs> Shit, Scott, that's super helpful. <laughs> well, yet I personally don't go crazy and try to remove every single milligram of the stuff from my tanks. We've talked repeatedly about my views on detritus, so I won't rehash it too much here, except to state that if you find this stuff offensive or aesthetically revolting in some way, take it out. However, if you embrace the view that nature utilizes the material to serve as a means of processing nutrients and fostering denitrification, you might just want to leave some or all of it in. Now, the caveat here is I didn't just give you a green light or give myself permission to neglect tanks or avoid basic husbandry. No, 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 that wasn't the point. The point is to accept that materials breaking down in our aquariums can provide fuel or for the biological processes which create long-term stability in a closed system. Nature knows how to work with this stuff, yet make no mistake here. She'll absolutely kick your ass if you don't pay attention to husbandry. I 100% guarantee it. Full stop. Allowing plants, fishes, shrimp, and bacteria the chance to utilize decomposing botanicals in their life cycle is an important part of the game, in my humble opinion. Being overly fastidious about siphoning out every speck or dirt of dirt or botanical materials that breaks down is overkill, in my opinion. It could be just as detrimental as overdoing things. Nature strikes a balance. Nature thrives on efficiency. When you're adding botanicals to a tank, you're not just doing aquascaping. You're laying down a groundwork for the biological operating system of your aquarium. And as such, you need to think big picture, you know, functional aesthetics and all that stuff. And there's the role of this stuff in regards to food. Part of the big picture in our tanks is the idea that we can create a food web of sorts or at least foster supplemental food sources by utilizing botanicals, allowing them to remain in our systems. Now, again, this isn't just about food for the fishes, which is what we're going to talk about here, but think about it as food for the other organisms which power the ecosystem, you know, bacteria, fungi, crustaceans, etc. Now, just, again, ruminate on this idea of food for just a second. Getting back to the fishes, you ever think about what your fishes eat in the wild? But beyond that, what are the implications, you know, what implications do their dietary preferences have for those of us who want to mimic those habitat conditions as closely as possible? Well, it's easy to say insects and stuff and just move on, but the reality is that even for some of the most unlikely fishes, the variety of items that they consume is astonishingly diverse and perhaps even a bit unexpected. Of course, I had to get down and dirty and do some online research, you know, Google and stuff, because I don't have somebody I can just, you know, text and say, hey, what's the answer here? <laughs> and I found some interesting stuff. For example, one study of the gut content analysis, you know, gut contents of of you know, that rather well-liked kerosene, the cardinal tetra, in its natural habitat yielded some familiar food items and perhaps a few surprises. Stuff like harpactoid copepods, you know, the kind that we use in, for, to feed marine fishes, 
uh, Daphnia moinia, which is another small Daphnia-like microcrustacean. Nymph larvae, small flies of various species, partially digested ants. Yes. In addition to being a surprising find, the presence of ants and flies in the fish's digestive systems confirms that they may feed from the surface in the wild, too. Clumsy ants don't last too long in the canopy in the flooded forest, do they? Remember our old friend Alectonus input, food from outside the aquatic system? Comes into play here. And those flakes and pellets that we toss in are recognizable to these guys, perhaps not because, you know, they physically resemble natural foods or smell good, but simply because they facilitate natural feeding behaviors ingrained in the fishes for eons. Yeah, the fishes will dart to the surface and feed in the wild, so yeah. What else did the study find? Well, rotifers, crustacean larvae, crustacean and fish eggs, some filamentous algae and diatoms were also found, further bolstering the idea that not only, you know, although we tend to classify fishes like crustaceans as micro-predators, they're also opportunistic omnivores to some extent, foraging for what they can in the environments in which they reside. And there was also random detritus, including things like fish scales, decomposed leaf material, and stuff like that. And the presence of fish scales, which you could hypothesize might mean they either pick at other fishes or forage on dead ones, confirms the opportunistic part. This stuff comprises a surprisingly significant amount of their gut contents. And what does this all mean for us as hobbyists? Well, I'm not saying to, you know, drop dead fishes into your tank or drop ants into your tank when you find them in the house, although it is tempting, if not a bit vengeful when your home's under siege from the little bastards, but... You're not going to do that as part of your regular feeding regimen. You could, and you should, perhaps. But what I am saying is that a diverse menu of plant and animal material is always a good idea. And the bulk should be things like crustaceans, insect larvae, hey, bloodworms, and even some of the live or frozen copepods and stuff like Daphnia would make a diet that's pretty good you know, at mimicking what they consume in the wild, right? And maybe that old yet annoyingly messy to culture standby, their wingless fruit fly, might not be a bad food source either. either. And I suppose ants as well. Yeah, you bet. And those litter beds are perhaps one of the ultimate culture media for all this stuff, and they are very much a feeding ground for fishes. Another interesting thing I learned in my research is that when scientists studied some of the Amazonian leaf litter beds, it was found that in one study there were like 20-plus species of you know fish found in one bed of like 200 square meters. That's a remarkable diversity considering this rather specialized environment. And perhaps even more interesting was that the bulk of the species found were feeding almost exclusively on the invertebrate life present in these litter beds, seldom straying more than a meter from where they were initially captured. Talk about going where the food is. You know, as they're finite resources of food, even in an area as productive as a submerged leaf litter bed, and because there was such a diversity of species in such a small area, it was theorized by the researchers that fishes have developed what they termed refined habitat subdivision. In other words, it simply means that each species has evolved to feed on a separate resource supply to avoid competitive deprivation of the food sources. That's really interesting, right? And the prey doesn't move either, like chironomids, you know, the the bloodworms or an insect-like creature, that compose a lot of the fish's diets. They remain attached to the same leaf litter for their entire life cycle. So you see where this is going. Each fish inhabits a spatial niche within the leaf litter, feeding on its own localized food supply. Well, at least I found this interesting. Again, what are the aquarium-level takeaways here? Well, since we can get food to our fishes regardless of what level they inhabit you know, within the aquarium, it's entirely logical to create fish communities where the species selected inhabit, you know, inhabit different regions of the tank. Okay, a leaf litter bed in my obsessive you know, geek, fish geek case, but 
For example, a good combination of fishes for a leaf litter-themed tank would be things like epistogramma, which in nature seem to hang out at the edges of the leaf litter beds, and then various kerosens in the middle of it all, and fishes like pencil fishes and pyrolina holding station sort of above the leaf litter bed. I see this in my own tanks a lot. If I could ever secure one of my obsession fish, the cryptic darter-like kerosen, Elacocarex pulcher, they reside right smack dab in the middle of the leaf litter. Yeah, that's when, that's a fish I'm really trying to get. <laughs> okay, so anyways, I'm starting meandering. And to wrap up this meander, you can see that feeding is just one consideration you could think about when creating, stocking, and maintaining a, bi- a botanical-style aquarium. Not only what to feed, but where and how it fits in the overall concept. Think about preferred feeding niches for various species in the wild when you're selecting fishes for your tanks. Now, granted, in an aquarium, fishes will adapt and typically feed wherever the food is, but wouldn't it be an interesting experiment to set up a population of fishes that you know feed in different locales within, say, the leaf litter and actually create those locales for the fishes? Maybe? No? Possibly? Okay, whatever. I'm obviously geeking out about this stuff like I always do. Well, to to wrap up all these concepts and ideas together in the context of creating a long-term, stable, botanical-style aquarium... It all comes back to the overriding concept of creating and maintaining stability. Detritus, decomposing leaves, in-situ food sources, regular water exchanges. Incorporating and embracing all of these elements into our botanical-style aquarium practice is foundational, in my humble opinion. It requires some mental shifts. It requires some thinking. But it's indicative of a mental shift we have to make, one of which many of you already have made, no doubt. I look forward to seeing many more examples of us utilizing what we've got to the advantage of our fishes. This is one of the most exciting parts of the botanical style aquarium, and I'm super happy to have so many of you along for the ride as we learn together. Stay consistent, stay curious, stay diligent, stay creative, stay persistent, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.